Hello and welcome to the Technicast. Lone eccentric geniuses locked away rehearsing, practicing all day, or schmoozing, networking self-marketeers. Does practice really make perfect and indeed successful? What did it take to be a musician in 18th century London and how much of it might still be similar today? These are the questions at the core of this episode. Continuing our theme of practice, PhD student Lizzie Buckle looks at exactly that through the lens of some practical tips given to a visiting virtuoso. And here she is now to discuss the art, and indeed the craft, of being a musician in the 18th century. Shortly before his arrival in London in 1704, Composer and conductor Johann Sigismund Kuser recorded some important advice in his notebook. Under the heading, What a Virtuoso Should Observe Upon Arriving in London, Kuser wrote down 33 tips given to him by fellow German and musician Jakob Krieber. Some instructions are clearly aimed specifically at visiting virtuosi like Kuser. Number 27. Don't try to smuggle anything through customs, even if you have slipped inspect a little something under the table. But lots of the advice alludes to the practical concerns of a whole range of London's musicians, from celebrated Italian castrati to inexperienced English instrumentalists. In this podcast, I want to challenge romantic stereotypes that portray musicians as lone geniuses, wedded to their art and completely unmotivated by money. With the help of Kusa's notebook, I'll show you that successful musicians were well-practiced in both musical and commercial pursuits. Number one, find good lodging. Logistics were an important consideration for any budding 18th century musician, especially when finding somewhere to live. Lots of musicians chose to live in Covent Garden, close to the theatres where they found work and not far from their patrons and audience members. This made practical, economic and common sense, as negotiating London streets, whether on foot or by coach, could be slow, smelly and even dangerous. On the 8th of July, 1784, newspapers carried the following report. Yesterday, between the hours of one and two o'clock, the following daring robbery and murder was committed. As Mr Charles Linton, musician, was returning from the Haymarket Theatre, where he had been detained at the rehearsal of a new piece, he was attacked by three ruffians. These ruffians stole Linton's watch and money and stabbed him, leaving him to bleed to death. This is, of course, rather an extreme example, but muggings were nevertheless a risk, especially when travelling at night, which musicians did a lot. Convenient lodgings also enabled musicians to earn more as less time and money spent travelling equaled more time spent performing. Number seven. At the signing of the contract, announce that you cannot remain longer than about six weeks. 18th century musicians employed strategies similar to some marketing techniques used today. Taglines such as First performance in public and Final performance in England were often found in playbills and concert adverts as they were designed to make these events seem more exclusive. Announcing some kind of special occasion, or, as Kusa's notebook suggests, an imminent departure, made that particular performance seem more special and therefore unmissable. This technique of limiting availability is still used today, 
Think about all those deals that are advertised as lasting. For a limited time only. And while stocks last. That make you rush out to buy that new sofa. And like at Sofas R Us, or whatever, these offers could easily be extended, indefinitely if necessary. Adverts for a concert at the Lock Hospital in 1773 state that violinist Felice Giardini's appearance would be the last time of his performing in public during his stay in England. His stay had already lasted 20 years and he didn't leave England for another decade. Number 14. Dress yourself particularly well for the Lords like to see that. Like today, a musician's appearance was part of their performance, their celebrity persona and certainly seems to have influenced their popularity. For example, soprano Elizabeth Lindley was famed not only for her voice but also for her innocent beauty, which lent itself particularly well to the performance of religious works. According to the novelist Frances Burney, Miss Lindley alone engrosses all eyes, ears, hearts, including those of the king, who ogled her as much as he dared to do in so holy a place as an oratorio. Prominent features could also help a musician stand out from the crowd. Cellist Giacobbe Chiavetto was often teased about the size of his nose and was rather unoriginally nicknamed Nosy. His nose even had a prologue performed in its honour by the famous actor David Garrick. In like extremes your laughing humour flows. Have ye not roared from pit to upper rose, and all the jest was what? A fiddler's nose. Pursue your mirth, each night the joke grows stronger, for as you fret the man, his nose looks longer. These comments may seem damaging, but they do say that all publicity is good publicity. Garrick's prologue was printed in a newspaper alongside the following comment that Despite Trevetto's long nose, no feature of his mind is out of proportion unless it be that his good qualities are extraordinary. Perhaps in an effort to counteract his distinctive features, Chiavetto always performed wearing a large diamond ring on the forefinger of his bow hand to give his performances an extra sparkle. Fellow string player Giardini seems to have taken a similar approach. His choice of dress certainly seems to have made an impression on the composer William Gardner. Recalling a performance by the violinist some 70 years earlier, Gardner declared, He was a fine-figured man, superbly dressed in green and gold, the breadth of the lace upon his coat, with the three large gold buttons on the sleeve, made a rich appearance, which still glitters on my imagination. However, a careful choice of outfit didn't just enrich a performance. It also gave the impression that a musician was prosperous and well-to-do even if that wasn't entirely the case. This helped them to stand their ground among the upper classes, which, as we shall see, could greatly benefit a performer's career. Number 30. The usual honorarium for performing at the home of a nobleman is 10 guineas. If afterwards you are invited to dinner and are expected to eat with a steward, make it clear that you would rather leave, then you will be seated at the nobleman's table. This is true for all such engagements. Unfortunately, this strategy didn't quite work out for Giardini. Once, while staying with the Duke of Cumberland, Giardini had asked where he was to dine. On discovering he was expected to eat at the servants' table, Giardini was apparently so offended that he immediately left for an inn in town. While he didn't make it onto the Duke's table, 
Giardini did demonstrate that he expected to be treated as one of them. Perhaps more importantly, his affront at being classed as a servant was in line with the expected behaviour of a member of the elite. After all, surely most entitled people would have reacted similarly to Giardini when placed in the same situation. Mingling with an ability could help a musician to promote their reputation among some of the richest and most powerful people in the country, and a musician was far more likely to fit in and therefore be invited to associate with these people if they not only dressed but also acted the part. An invitation to dine at a nobleman's table could help to secure future gigs at the houses of the upper classes and to attract potential patrons and securing a patron could be extremely lucrative. When Giardini's patron, Mrs Fox Lane, died in 1771, she granted him an annual payment of £200, which is roughly equivalent to £17,500 today. While not all patronages were quite as generous as this, they nevertheless helped to top up musicians' earnings and helped to tide them over between seasons. Number 22. When all the concerts are over and the instrumentalists have been paid, invite them to dinner. One must not neglect to do that, for in return one gets them to do the last benefit concert without pay. The benefit concert was one way for musicians to promote their skills and to generate some income. Unlike other concerts, they were organised and funded by an individual musician who would enlist the support of other performers to take part in the event. While the organiser received all the profits, they also took on the associated costs of arranging the event, including hiring the venue and music, placing adverts, printing tickets and hiring performers. Anything a musician could do to reduce these expenses would leave more money in their pocket, which explains the advice in Kusa's notebook. Wining and dining colleagues was a surefire way of currying their favour and securing their future support. Building up a stock of owed favours was also helpful if times became tough. In an age before health insurance and when few musicians received pensions, performers frequently had to work into their old age. Retiring to Tenerife or taking up gardening simply weren't an option. Our friend Cervetto was still performing at the age of 98. Injury, illness or instrument damage could also be catastrophic. John Malcher's career came to a sticky end when an orange, thrown by an audience member, broke his violin, forcing him to resign from the band. Some performers were members of the Fund for Decayed Musicians and could claim emergency assistance for themselves or their families. For example, when the elderly horn player Thomas Kay became unwell in 1803, the Fund paid for the 12 bottles of sherry he had been prescribed by his doctor. This clearly did the trick. Kay returned to the stage and lived for another 13 years. However, extracting money from the fund was a complicated business. Anyone seeking assistance was required to present the governors with a certificate signed by 10 members of the fund stating that he was a proper object for relief. And to be a member of the fund in the first place, you had to be a man, recommended by another member, capable of paying the quarterly subscription fee and voted in by the committee. Whoever you persuaded to recommend you was presumably somebody prepared to put their trust in you, as well as to display their professional judgment before the panel. 
so the musicians most likely to receive assistance from the fund were those who built up a strong network of respected colleagues, those with not only musical prowess, but also strong interpersonal skills. As we've seen, Kusa's notebook focuses on giving practical tips to the budding musician. We've seen how necessary it was to build up a strong network of admirers, patrons and colleagues, to be mindful of one's appearance, to consider logistics and to employ marketing strategies. While this podcast has focused on the importance of these more entrepreneurial elements, it should be acknowledged that musicians also needed to be adequate performers. Many went to great lengths to improve their technique by training from an early age and travelling abroad to study with the great masters. And of course, they undertook many hours of practice. There are tales of how Handel had to sneak up to the attic to practice the clavichord while his parents slept, and how composer Thomas Arne practised on the sly as a boy by muffling the strings of his spinet with his handkerchief. William T. Park complained that so much of his time was taken up by rehearsals that he had little opportunity to practise the oboe, his favourite instrument, except very early in the morning. When I retired to rest at night, I fastened a small cord to my arm, which, passing through the window of my sleeping room, reached down to the iron railings of the kitchen area. This cord was, by my direction, pulled by the watchman at four o'clock in the morning, when I arose and practised until nine. This plan I pursued winter and summer for three years. So, to practise successfully as a musician in 18th century London required dedication in both musical and entrepreneurial pursuits. That was Lizzie Buckle with Practice Makes Perfect, How to Be a Musician in the 18th Century. And she joins me in our virtual studio now. Hi, Lizzie. Hiya. Welcome to the Technicast. Oh, thank you. What a fascinating podcast. Thank you so much for it. It's such a great lens to look at it through, um, this journal. And I love the, the matter-of-factness of it, the worldliness, even the cheekiness of some of Greber's tips. So are there, are there maybe any more that you can read out to us, maybe surprising ones? Yeah, I'm quite glad you asked me this because it was really hard to pick the ones to include because lots of them are just quite funny, which they might not have had this sort of musical links but they just sort of tickled me a bit so lots of them are taking the mickey out of the english because obviously they're german and so they're sort of like well, we don't really like these english people very much there's one that's about um well it's number number 16 and it says don't let them make a controversy of you they are masters at this so that they're, they're sort of like oh well they, they're always gonna sort of try and make fun of you and just ignore these stupid english people and I kind of linked to that. They're obviously telling each other kind of how to please the English because although they're sort of a bit irritated by them, they think, well, actually, they're going to pay us money, so you know, better, better make them happy. So number 20 is praise the deceased Purcell to the skies and say there was, there's never been the like of him. <laughs> so it's like, you know, make sure that you say Purcell because Purcell was like, I guess, before Handel was this, the composer that everybody was thought was like the great English composer. I mean, he'd been dead for a few years by this point, but, you know, they were like, let's keep him going. I mean, interesting as well that you call Handel an English composer. Well, exactly. I mean, he was German and I think probably had quite a strong German accent. There were a few sort of transcriptions of stuff that, that he said and it sounds like he had a German accent. So it's kind of ridiculous. But then the king, the English king, was also German. So yeah. I guess it went with the times a bit. And then one that's just my fa favourite one is 
it kind of reminds me of today. It, it's number 28, and it says, travel like the baggage costs more than the person himself, which kind of reminds me of like Ryanair or whatever, where you think you're getting a really good deal, and actually you've still got to pay like 20 quid or something just to get your bags through customs or something. So it just made me smile. Yeah, that's something that I want to get back to as well, how much it's still uh, similar today and uh, and how much it isn't. But first, I just want to say that it's such a great take on our theme of practice. And, and it's really interesting to hear how many musicians complained about not having time to practice. So overall, like listening to your podcast, it made it sound like a really difficult and complex life. So why would someone embark on this profession? Well, firstly, you kind of ran in the family. Lots of musicians came from musical families anyway, so they, you know, their fathers were, fam- were, were in the music industry and, and their children and their children went on to it, and so it was kind of like, in the same way that I guess like carpenters or, or whatever, that that was their family profession or something, um, they, they just, you know, carried on doing that, so it wasn't maybe something they questioned, it was something they just sort of fell into a little bit. But also, because of that, it was actually easier to get into it if you already had lots of people in the family because they already had the connection set up. So that kind of made it slightly simpler. Having said that, there are lots of people who moaned about it all the time. Uh, in the newspapers, there were articles, I guess, of people moaning about all the terrible things they have to do as a musician. I think there's one, it's about an opera singer, who says something along the lines of it's just not fair everybody else is allowed to be ill i'm not allowed to get like the slightest cold or, or you know a, co- a cough or anything and if i do everybody complains at me you know for, for not performing and you know even opera singers are ill sometimes which you know i guess that's maybe a bit tricky but i also think these sort of comments and moanings and things should be taken with quite a large pinch of salt because you have to think why they put it in the newspaper in the first place. I mean, opera singers were also just paid, well, certainly the professional ones, were paid such an astronomical amount of money. You think, well, if you got that money, then you kind of have to push through a bit sometimes. Um, So I think maybe it wasn't as bad as people made out. I guess a bit like today with with the stars, you know, in in acting in music in football that are paid extraordinary amounts of money and yet it's really comparable to that, like the famous celebrity singers were, I guess, you know, like the most popular musicians today, I think. I th- what I thought was really interesting was the role or the, the, the situation that you present them in between essentially being sort of craftsmen, mm-hmm. it's the craft of music, but at the same time wanting to be part of that upper echelon. And, you know, when you say the outrage that you have to either feel genuinely or pretend that you feel mm. at being sat at the at the table with the servants, you know, that sort of thing. I found that was a really interesting position. So were they were they seen as, you know, part of the of the upper crust, as it were, or not quite? They basically being a musician was still kind of associated with like a traveling minstrel type idea where you were almost a beggar kind of or or, or it was sort of linked to that and so try as they might they were never I think truly counted as a member of the of the you know the upper crust as you as you call them I think they tried very hard but they they probably could never quite unpick themselves from that if you think of it the other way around you, you didn't really have many posh people 
as professional mus- musicians. I mean, I guess to have a profession at all if you were really rich was was sort of bad because it implies you need the money. But even though lots of well, it it was just the, your education to prove that you were a well-rounded individual. You, um, particularly for women, you know, you learned to play the harpsichord and you learned to sing, etc. Um, but performing was just not okay. You you could perform in private, but you wouldn't go on the stage. Like going on the stage was like a kind of crass thing. It was it was especially for your woman. It was almost associated with with acting and and which was also seen as kind of bad and kind of prostitution and stuff like that. And so because of all these connections, I think you would never actually quite make it, um, even if you tried really hard. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder I wonder how similar that might be today because today I guess appearing in public and making it big would be would be really seen even by I suppose people who have who have the money who don't need to work for it would still be seen as a great success. Yeah, maybe we measure success a little bit more by fame rather than I don't know. So aside from that, I think I thought it was quite interesting to see how much might still be similar today and, and as you mentioned throughout your podcast. And, and it made me wonder if this was something that is taught in conservatoires, in drama schools, you know, to creatives in general, that entrepreneurial side of it, that, that crafts side of it. Is that something that you know about? Um, I'm not sure exactly. I know that there are some joint courses that are music and business and things like that, which seems to be fairly fairly logical to me. I mean, I think it slightly depends because when you say like studying music, I mean, there are all sorts of different types of music you can study. You know, for example, I mean, I'm a musicologist. Um, I don't do any performance like as part of my degree, but I would I would kind of hope that things like conservatoires that they are to taught to manage this this sort of side of it because I think that influences a lot whether they were whether somebody would be professional or not I, I mean I guess if you think of all the most successful musicians that they, they've got all their PR sorted out haven't they they know what to post on Twitter and so whether that's something that people learn on the job or, or you know have been schooled in I'm not sure I, I think maybe maybe it's a bit of both um, but I think it should it should be taught yeah, so we should have Graeber's tips for the Twitter age, basically. <laughs> yeah, I I think so, yeah. I mean, I think maybe if you're a performer, then there is a certain part of you that, like, performs your your, your life, I guess. And, and it is kind of putting on a performance, isn't it? I mean, like, what you choose to write on social media is like a performance. It's like a character that you um, you take on. Yeah. Well, anyway, I thought you, you really successfully challenged that romantic stereotype of, of the lone genius and of, you know, that creative who sits there and comes up with this wonderful music, wonderful stuff. But, um, and yet somehow that's still prominent in some way today. So where do you think that comes from? And, and especially why does it endure? I think that's probably quite a complicated thing. I think it probably comes from lots of different strands and, and almost like tradition or, or habit. I think probably, you know, academics, musicologists, critics are probably partly responsible because it's kind of boring to take a piece of music and say, oh yeah, so-and-so composed this because 
you know, his piggy bank was looking a bit empty, and so we thought we'd better knock something out quickly. No, that just wouldn't do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we'd much rather say that, you know, um, this piece was composed as a you know political satire to challenge whatever regime, because it's just more dramatic, it's more entertaining. Or like, I don't know, for example, you know, this is so simple. It may sound simple, but it's actually more complicated because he was, you know, um, linking it to this, I don't know, cultural revolution or whatever, rather than, uh, oh, yeah, he was a bit late because he's, you know, he'd already, you know, missed his deadline like three times and had to get it off pretty quickly. So we thought we'd better write something really simple. But it just doesn't make such a good story. And so I think part of it is, is people writing about music and just wanting it to be a bit more interesting than maybe it is. And I think audience members are probably responsible as well because I think maybe we find it a little bit crass if we sit there and think, oh, you know, they're doing it for money. It's like, I want you to perform because you enjoy it. I don't want you to be there just because you're being paid. It sort of takes the enjoyment out of it somehow. Yeah. Which is is kind of ridiculous. I'm trying to think if it applies to other professions i wonder if there's an element of, of suspension of disbelief you know i mean they put on these personae and uh, and we as an audience also choose to believe that yeah you yeah know, it's a bit like theater isn't it exactly yeah and i think also maybe it's linked to the fact that playing a musical instrument or singing or whatever is also a hobby you know it's something that some people do on the side i mean very well um and it's not they're not paid to do it they do it because they really enjoy doing it people aren't like a doctor by hobby you don't like do it at the week. I mean I hope not that would be kind of terrifying <laughs> and, and I think maybe it's the same for other sort of more artistic professions you know like painting and drawing and writing even some people do it voluntarily and so it's kind of maybe that it's sort of linked to the idea that because some people do it for free why do you deserve money for doing something that you enjoy which is kind of stupid because people enjoy their career doing you know being a lawyer or you know a sort of more standard job. But I think all these things, I'm not sure they're the root of the thing. I think I think they sort of help to perpetuate it. But I, I don't know I don't know what the cause is especially. You know, I don't know what can narrow it down to one particular thing. Yeah, and we probably won't answer that question here, but it's an interesting one to talk about anyway. Yeah, let me know if you know the answer. I shall do, yeah. We'll tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before I let you go, Lizzie, um, I believe you have an exhibition coming up at the Foundling Museum and um, that's for anyone who doesn't know, um, it's a great place that everyone should visit. It's to me it says so much about the cultural history of London, of Britain, and of and of patronage as well. And um, I know that Handel was a great patron of the hospital, as it was. Mm -hmm. um, but can you tell us a bit more about the exhibition that you've curated and how it links to your work, maybe? Yeah. So the exhibition is called hilariously Friends with Benefits, and. It's kind of a play on benefit concerts, which I mentioned briefly in my, my podcast, and the idea that lots of musicians knew each other. It's sort of about networking for musicians. And so it's kind of trying to show how people, how all these musicians knew each other. So, for example, lots of them married each other. People were just friends. They went to each other's weddings. We have examples of that. There are sort of insurance records that show that so-and-so was having an affair with this musician because you can see that they lived um she lived at his house for a bit and then she went you know went off with another man because she lived in somebody else's house so there's lots of interesting kind of snapshots into i guess the networks in which these musicians lived so it's kind of all about that great 
Okay, and that, so that's at the Foundling Museum, which is near King's Cross, Corrins yeah, Fields. Yeah. When does it open and how long can we see it? Uh, so it opens at the end of October, on the 22nd of October, and it's there until the end of April. So you've got a little bit of time. You could go twice, you know. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, and finally, because it's about voices as well, and I think you used them really well in your podcast, so maybe we should briefly mention who helped you read them out. Yeah, so I have to say thank you to um, Christian Lightmire and Sam Hillman, Tom Hillman, um, Colin Coleman and Claudia Chapman for sort of bringing the voices to life. Yeah, really brought life to it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Lizzie, and uh, good luck with the rest of it. And hopefully we'll see you at the exhibition at some point as well. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of the Technicast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe on your podcasting app and to share it with your friends. Also, don't hesitate to get in touch with feedback and suggestions or if you'd like to contribute. We're on Twitter at Technicast or email technicaster at gmail.com. Lizzie Buckle is a PhD student at the Foundling Museum and at Royal Holloway. Her exhibition, Friends with Benefits, is at the Foundling Museum from the 22nd of October through April 2022. Thanks again to Lizzie for her contribution, and thanks to Techne for their support. And on behalf of the Technicast team, that is Polly Hember and myself, Julien Klein, thank you for listening. See you next time when we introduce another researcher's fascinating topic. <laughs>